So tonight we get to imagine heaven. We get one of the more lengthy views of the eternal age of glory that we see in the book of Revelation thus far. Uh, the more you go throughout Revelation, the more you see of heaven. In each cycle, the curtain is peeled back more and more and more on the eternal age. We are at the tail end of the third of seven cycles in Revelation. The first cycle showed us Christ in the midst of his churches. And those seven churches of Asia Minor are real churches, but they're also representative of all the churches throughout the church age. And the sorts of challenges, and the sorts of suffering, and the sorts of, um, of sin that uh, would need to be uh, overcome, and that would need to be uh, endured, and would need to be repented of. And so uh, we, we saw that. And then in the second cycle, we saw the seven seals, which was really the first cycle of judgment, showing us how God is judging the world presently, and how he will ultimately judge the world. And then in the third cycle, we get our second cycle of judgment, which comes not in seven seals, but in seven trumpets. And the trumpets have been a lot like the seals. The first four seals were all grouped together in the same way the first four trumpets were grouped together. And in those first four trumpets, as they were blown, we saw how God's judgments are active in the world throughout history until one day when final judgment will come. And as his judgments are active in the world throughout history, that has ramifications for the people who are living on the earth. It impacts their lives. The fifth trumpet was blown and we saw how Satan and his demonic forces have temporary authority and they are going to bring torment to the lives of unbelievers on the earth. And then when the sixth trumpet sounds out, we see humanity tearing itself apart with war until Christ returns. Then we have this interlude uh, that takes place in chapters 10 and 11. We saw John commissioned to take uh, the revelation that he has been given to the nations. And he's not just to prophesy to the nations, but he is to eat the little scroll, right? He is to internalize the word of God for himself. And right after that, the interlude moved to a vision showing us the witness of the church in two symbols. The first one was uh, the temple, and the church is represented by the temple in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. John is measuring uh, the worship and the devotion of the church, but the church is being trampled by the world who wants to stop the witness. Then the witness of the church is explained in another symbol in the two witnesses in the last part of the interlude, and we saw how uh, the witnesses represent the church going out and proclaiming the gospel during uh, the age uh, of the church, and as we go out and proclaim the gospel, the world will respond to it with anger, with violence, and will even seek to kill the church, and indeed, many of our brothers and sisters will suffer martyrdom, and they will dance over their bodies in the streets. But the interlude wrapped up with hope last week, the hope of final resurrection. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, talking about the witnesses, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. 
The second woe refers to the three woes pronounced by the eagle in Revelation 8.13. He, he, he flies over saying, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So you have the first four trumpets and then woe, woe, woe. And with each woe and with each trumpet blast, things have gotten worse. And with the passing of the second woe in chapter 11, the third woe is soon to come. So with the third woe, we are seeing the end. We are seeing the day of the Lord. In verses 11 through 14, we have the church being resurrected, and we have the church being raptured and taken up into heaven with Christ. We have judgment falling on a portion of humanity right off the bat with a giant earthquake, and then you have the rest of humanity begrudgingly giving glory to God. He's Lord, I admit it, but uh, they do not worship him, and that leads to the end of the third cycle, the seventh trumpet. Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who, was and, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your saints, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Father, uh, I pray that tonight when we leave here that we would not think of heaven as an abstract thing that we hope might happen but that we would think of, of it as an objective reality and a place that we are going to live one day. That we're going to live one day like the houses and the apartments that we're going to go home to tonight. And that it will feel more like home than those houses and those apartments and more like home than this world. Help us to see it and to believe it tonight, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you long for heaven as a believer, but you should. It should be the cry of your heart the same way a weary traveler who is too tired to go on might cry out after the third flight is delayed. I just want to get home, right? You ever been in that place where a vacation is ending and hurdle after hurdles being thrown in front of you, or a work trip is ending and hurdle after hurdles being thrown in front of you, and you stop in an airport or a car rental service or somewhere, and you go, I just want to go home. So it should be with us as Christians. We should every day be saying, I just want to go home. Randy Alcorn, in his book Heaven, which many of our small groups have been reading, says, in heaven we'll be at home with the God we love and who loves us wholeheartedly. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, if you write to me, write to me like this. At Westminster, London, temporary address, Westminster. Permanent address, heaven in Christ. I am but a stranger here, heaven is my home. 
When Charles Spurgeon imagined heaven, he imagined a place where he could fully be with Jesus at every single moment in every location without any sort of influence or poisoning from sin. And so he said, above, beneath, around, within, without, everywhere it is heaven. I breathe heaven. I drink heaven. I feel heaven. I think heaven. Everything is heaven. Oh, what must it be to be there? To be there is to be with Christ. The seventh trumpet peels back the curtain on the place where Christ is seated and shows us heaven. God gives us a taste of glory here at the end of the third cycle and we are reminded that Christ is going to come back. And that when he does, the saints will get their reward and those who dwell on the earth will suffer judgment. The key to this passage is verse 19. So we have to start at the end of chapter 11 where it says, then God's temple in heaven was opened. Now, that right there should cause you to stop, to look up from your Bible and go, what? He opened heaven? He's showing us heaven? I mean, that ought to get us excited. We get so excited when some human being claims they had a dream or something, and they're like, oh, I had a dream, or I had a near-death experience, and I went to heaven, and a lot of times the things they say they saw aren't actually in the Bible, and we should be really careful with those books. If you want to know what it's like to be in heaven... Read the Bible, because God tells us what heaven is like in the Bible. Those are the words we hold on to when it comes to heaven. So we get so excited when somebody writes a book like that, but our heads don't pop up here. No, our heads should be popping up going, whoa, he's opening up heaven and he is showing us. Like, I thought about Sally Sheard, who's one of our church members, who's a realtor. And she has these things that realtors have, right? Open houses, where they open up a property, invite people to come in and take a look around. And this is God saying, I'm going to have an open house for heaven. He, he, he's opening up the property of eternity. And he is saying, have a look around. And so we start there because it's the key to the passage. What verse 19 is showing us is that when the seventh trumpet blows, God will put his glorious eternal work on display for the whole universe. From the beginning, he has been building the temple that we saw at the beginning of chapter 11. Track with me on this. Let's do a little history. You see a promise come after the fall of humanity in the garden with the sin of Adam and Eve. God speaks and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So a child is going to come from the line of Eve, who will have his heel bruised by Satan. That's not a fatal blow. But that child will step on the head of the serpent. That is a fatal blow. So the serpent will harm the child, but the child will ultimately step on the serpent's head. This is Jesus. The child being talked about, the offspring being talked about in Genesis 3, and this will be all the more important when we get to Genesis 12 next week, but, um, or I'm sorry, Revelation 12 next week. But Genesis 3 here, when it talks about this offspring, this is Jesus. And this is clear when you get to the book of Luke, and Luke is talking about Jesus' lineage. He says that Jesus is the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. If he's the son of Adam, that means he's also the son of Adam's wife, Eve. And we see the purpose of this child, Christ, being born and coming against Satan in John's first pastoral letter. John writes, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, meaning the devil's been sinning from the beginning, right? He has wanted to undermine God's authority, steal God's place, and then he comes into the garden, he wants to steal God's place in Adam and Eve's lives and steal God's place in the world, and so he deceives them, and this child is going to come from Eve who will destroy the deceiver. He will step on his head. That's Jesus. And that is what John is explaining in 1 John 3.8. He will destroy the works of the devil. And every promise you see in the Old Testament is fulfilled in this child who comes from Eve's line. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, all of God's promises find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. As Jesus is on the Emmaus Road, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's actually the upper room, not the Emmaus Road. But he says something very similar on the Emmaus Road. These promises that he is the fulfillment of would include the promises to Israel concerning land, lineage, and blessing. The promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12, the cornerstone promises for God's people. What, what is it that God said Abraham would get? Well, he would have a land to dwell with God in, and God would dwell with the people there. That is one thing that is promised. Secondly, he's promised lineage, right? There's going to be a family that comes from his loins that it's going to be like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the shore. So um, it's going to be a, a, a line of covenant worshipers like Abraham uh, that are going to come from Abraham's lineage. And then there's blessing. Through Abraham, the whole world, all the families of the world are going to be blessed through Abraham's family. And if you mess with Abraham's family, then you will be cursed. And throughout the Old Testament, Israel finds the blessings promised to Abraham are coming to them in pieces as long as they're keeping covenant with God and they're believing God and they're obeying God. But if you've read the Old Testament, you know there is this brutal cycle that keeps happening where they come to God and they love Him and they want to worship Him and there's a bit of spiritual revival and then something happens and they forget about God and they go off and they start worshiping golden calves. Or they go off to the high places and start offering up uh, sacrifices to Baal. And it's not long before the cycle, you know, has led them to a place where they're sinners needing repentance, needing God's grace, and so God forgives them. And then it's, yay, God! And then it's the cycle again. They, 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 they sin against God again, turn their back on Him again. He disciplines them again. He brings them back again. And so the Old Testament, we just see this kind of happening again and again and again and again. And in the midst of some of the most hard discipline that God hands out to Israel, when they are in exile in Babylon, he speaks to them through the prophet Jeremiah and says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. A new covenant is coming that's going to be different than the one that Moses made through the law at Sinai, right? Moses 
took the law, brings it down to the people. God makes a promise to the people. You obey this law, I will bless you. You break this law, it's not going to be good. What do they do? They keep breaking the law. Cycle of sin just keeps going. Therefore, God declares, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Jesus then comes. He creates a new covenant community, starting with these 12 disciples. And the night that he is betrayed, he gathers them all in a room, and they eat this meal together that I believe was likely the Passover meal. And he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So we got a new Passover meal here. We got a new sacrificial lamb here. We got new blood that's got to be on the doorpost here. And it's his blood, the ultimate sacrificial Passover lamb. So his death inaugurates the new covenant. And then these Jewish apostles are told, take this news of this new covenant, um, this death, this resurrection, this eternal life that's being offered, the promises of God that all find their yes in Christ. Take this to Jerusalem and you tell people about it after Jesus ascends. And that's what they do. They go, they wait there, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they start preaching in Jerusalem, but it doesn't stay there. They take it to the region of Judea, still mostly dealing with Jewish people. Then they get up into Samaria, and you're dealing with people that are very much not totally Jewish, that the Jewish people don't even like, and then they start taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Why is the gospel going to the world? How did we get from from Abraham, Genesis 12, Israel, to the gospel going out to the nations? Well, the gospel is going out to the world because God is now bringing Gentiles in on his promise. This salvation, this covenant, these promises that find their yes in Christ. He's bringing non-Jewish people in on them. And in Acts 10, Peter goes to this guy Cornelius' house, a God-fearing Gentile, and he preaches Abraham's faith to a non-Jewish man, and that man believes. You say, well, why is this happening? Why is God now bringing a Gentile like Cornelius in on this promise, in on this covenant? Well, Jesus explains this in his parable of the vineyard. Mark 12, he says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and, they killed, and him they killed. And so with many others... Some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In this parable, God is the man who plants the vineyard, and he leases it to the tenants. The vineyard represents the kingdom of God. The tenants represent Israel. The servants that are sent to the tenants to preach about the kingdom are the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and like Jeremiah. And the people of Israel beat them and they killed them. Until Jesus is sent, the Son of God, the beloved Son. What do the tenants do? They kill him also. And in light of that, God will take the vineyard, the kingdom, away from them. And he will give it to others, i.e. Gentiles. 
because the Jewish tenants have rejected the cornerstone, Christ, the Son of God. And this is why you see the gospel going from Jerusalem to the nations. God is giving the kingdom to the Gentiles. You say, wait a second, you're saying there's no Jewish people that are going to be in the kingdom now? Oh, there's Jewish people in the kingdom. They're the original branches of the tree. And now God is grafting in the Gentiles as the unnatural branches. And that's the language of Romans 9-11 through if you read it. So yes, we have Jewish people in the kingdom. Yes, we have Gentile people in the kingdom. But the key is that the promises of Abraham are being offered beyond Israel to the nations if they would believe God like Abraham, turning from their sin and trusting in God's plan of salvation, which is, of course, Jesus. Abraham looked forward in faith. We repent and look backward in faith. And now God is building his church, his living temple, with one living stone at a time. He's stacking them up with each and every conversion. And the church that he is building will ultimately receive the Genesis 12 promises because they are Abraham's children by faith. Think about what was promised to Israel. A land to dwell with God in. That is a promise that ultimately is fulfilled in Christ who delivers to us the new earth by his saving work. A lineage. The church herself is the lineage of Abraham. The church in the Old Testament under the law, the church in the New Testament under grace, we are all God's people with the same faith that Abraham had. It's not a physical heritage, it's a spiritual heritage. And we are children of God by faith in the death and the rising of Christ. And it was promised that Abraham's family would be a blessing to the world. And indeed, the whole world is blessed through Abraham's line because Christ is redeeming people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue to be a part of his living temple. And when that temple is finished and the final living stone is put in place, the end will come and God will open up heaven and he will say, look at what I have done with my son. Look at what I've been working on from before time. Look at my wisdom. Look at my brilliance. Look at my redemption. And give me glory. Father, I thank you for the wisdom of your plan of salvation. I'm not done preaching, but I just want to stop right now, God, as we just see the way that this tracks from Genesis, from the beginning, all the way here to the open house in Revelation 11, 19. O sovereign king, be glorified in our hearts as we think about your plan. We long for the open house of heaven, God. Right in the middle of this sermon, we stop and we say we long for it and we are grateful that we can imagine ourselves standing there. And it is a thought that we only possess because we're able to lay claim to the blessings of your son by faith. Your son who has brought us the blessings of Father Abraham and give us the faith of Abraham to continue trusting your son every second of every minute, even through the rest of the sermon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So God's showing off his work. Right? He's saying, in my love, in my mercy, in my wisdom, in my kindness, in my sovereignty, in my wrath, this is what I've been doing through all of history, and the work is complete. Take a gander. Right? It's awesome. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple were paperweights. And, and, and they were there until the Lord would come in the flesh to redeem his people so they could know him and love him. And now the temple being shown off in verse 19 is the real deal, the complete work of redemption, the architectural representation of Jesus' bride that he fiercely loves, the one that he knows intimately, the one he measures in terms of devotion, in terms of worship. And then in verse 19 we see the Ark of the Covenant is there. 
Now, the Ark of the Covenant was the most obvious sign of God's presence in the Old Testament. That God was with his people. The lid of the ark was the mercy seat, and the priest would sprinkle blood on it to atone for the iniquity of the people and to pardon them for their sins. And inside of the ark were the tablets of the law. And so we see that it's kind of a full picture of the character of God, right? His law and his mercy, his grace and his wrath. And that has led some people to say that the ark here in verse 19 is actually Jesus because the ark represents the fullness of God's glory. Jesus is the exact imprint of, uh, of God's glory, right? We see law and mercy in the, in, in the lid and in the tablets. Um, and in the same way in Christ, we see grace and truth. But again, I think in Revelation, I've said this a few times, when Jesus is in view, I think it's really clear. Okay, so I don't think that the ark here is Christ. Instead, I think the ark is just generally showing us that God is with his people. That's what the ark showed in the Old Testament, that God was present with his people. And here, I just think the Lord wants us to see as heaven opens that he is with his people. In the Old Testament, the ark in the temple was not seen. It was hidden behind the thick curtain in the most holy place. But now Christ has inaugurated the kingdom in his first coming. And in his return, he is consummating the kingdom. There's no more sin in between God and his children. And he is showing off his church. And he is showing that he is with them by including the ark and the vision. Summing up this verse, this key verse in 19, William Hendrickson, who's a brilliant commentator, he says, Hence, When this ark is now seen, that is fully revealed, the covenant of grace and all its sweetness is realized in the hearts and the lives of God's children. When God opens the temple up, it's a message to the whole world. He's saying, I did what I said I was going to do, and I did it through my son, and I built my church, and I'm with my people. The work is complete. The age of glory is underway forever and for good. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said, it is God alone who makes heaven to be heaven. And Brooks is right. And in verse 19, God is showing us the heaven that he has made. Now with that said, if God's people are enjoying his presence after the seventh trumpet sounds, what's going on with those who dwell on the earth, those who are not his people? Well, the back half of verse 19 confirms they're undergoing the final judgment that was kicking off with the great earthquake in verse 13. The lightning and the rumbling thunder and the earthquake and the heavy hail It's consistent with what we see of final judgment in the other judgment cycles, in the seals and in the bowls. In the sixth seal, uh, when it's opened, which that was the seal that brought about final judgment, it says, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. In verses 17 and 18 of chapter 16, With the bowls, it says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The language is meant to remind us here that there's only two endings to the story. Jesus is going to win, the church will be victorious in him, and those who dwell on the earth, who have followed Satan, will be destroyed with Satan for opposing Christ. They will be judged with wrath. Therefore, you must make sure you are on Christ's side. And these words here, though they are not as explicit as when we see judgment in other places, it's a reminder. Repent. Repent. The kingdom is at hand. 
So with all that said, let's go back. Let's go to the start of the trumpet's blast in verse 15. Spend the rest of our time there. We've had some dark chapters with demon locusts and whatnot leading up to this. So let's spend the last few minutes pouring over these exciting words that are very light and not so heavy and, um, and, and hopefully are encouraging. Seventh angel blows the trumpet in verse 15 and there's loud voices in heaven speaking. It's a lot of noise in one verse, right? It's a very noisy verse of the Bible. Trumpet sounds and there's loud voices in heaven. We do not know who these loud voices are. Um, we do not know who is calling out. We just know it's loud. We do know what they're shouting, though. They're shouting, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Before I say what this verse means, let me say what I think it does not mean. We have not talked a lot about post-millennialism in here because I know that most of you came into this as premillennialists, and we probably don't have very many post-millennialists. Um, Premillennialism, like when I sit down and I study that and I think about it, there's a lot that makes sense to me and I could be convinced. Postmillennialism, I really struggle to see it. Um, doesn't make much sense to me and that's another reason I don't talk about it as much. However, this verse is, is like postmillennialists, they put their flag on this verse. Like, this is our verse, okay? So I do feel like I want to stop and just explain here um, what a postmillennialist would say this means. Postmillennialism teaches that Christ is going to return after a 1,000-year millennial reign on the earth. Okay? After. Now, that, year, uh, that millennial reign could be a literal 1,000 years or just a really long time. But the bottom line is that there's going to be a, a, a millennial period on the earth, and Christ will return after that. Thus, postmillennialism. If you're an amillennialist, you're like, Close, but no cigar, brother. Okay? If you're a premillennialist, you're like, oh, I can't take it on any level. That's just disgusting, right? I'm just telling you what they believe. Part of their doctrinal belief is that the political organizations of the world will be won over by Christians, and that will create a golden age of Christianity on the earth. And once that happens, Jesus is going to come back. In some ways, postmillennialists see it as their job to make this the sort of world that Jesus would want to come back to. You shouldn't be surprised to find out that Martin Luther King Jr. was a postmillennialist, for example, right? He really believed, let's go out in society, let's make change, let's make it the sort of society that the Lord would come back to, and then the Lord will return after this golden age of Christianity. Right now, there are some very famous postmillennialists like Douglas Wilson who are contending for Christian nationalism. They're preaching that the church should be spending our time um, taking over the political realm. I could not disagree with this more. In fact, as a Baptist, it makes me want to throw up on the carpet, to be honest with you, okay? Like, I, I don't want the government involved in what I'm doing. I don't really have a desire to take over their realm, okay? I want to see Satan's realm push back, and wherever he's touching, whether it's political or not political, we want to take the gospel, and we want to take the light of the gospel and push back on that darkness, okay? But um, I don't agree that our, our, the church's job is to be taking over the government, but they do in part because they believe that will cause the second coming to happen. I reject all that. I don't believe verse 15 is referring to the Christianization of the political realm, which will then trigger the millennium, which will bring about the second coming. In fact, I don't think verse 15 refers to this present age at all. This is heavenly worship in kingdom come at the conclusion of history. 
And I think it's meant for us to go back to Exodus chapter 15 when we see those words um, forever and ever here. All right, when it says that he shall reign forever and ever, I think that should cause us to think about what Moses sang after deliverance from Egypt in Exodus 15. And his song of victory says, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Pharaoh's not going to reign forever and ever. God will reign forever and ever. That was what was implied in that song of victory. Moses was singing with his people saying, there was a showdown. Our God lives and Pharaoh and his army are washed away in the Red Sea. And in the same way, we have loud voices on the shores of eternity here celebrating eternal deliverance, not from a Pharaoh, but from Abaddon the destroyer, from Satan, the king over the bottomless pit. And they are celebrating the fact that the kingdoms of Satan that he had claimed now belonged to Christ and Christ is going to reign forever and ever and Satan will not in the same way that Pharaoh would not. In John 12, 31, when Jesus talks about Satan, he calls him a ruler and the Greek word could also mean prince. Meaning that Jesus acknowledges that Satan has temporary authority on the earth. We saw him given a key to the bottomless pit in Revelation 9, which tells us he doesn't have authority in and of himself. Someone has to give him the key. Someone has to give him authority. And that someone, of course, is God. But it's enough authority that Satan and his demonic ego thinks that he's the ruler of this earth. And that is why when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness temptation, what does Satan say to him? I can give you all the kingdoms. Well, we read that and we're like, they're already his. That's his inheritance. What are you trying to offer him? Right? It'd be like somebody coming to me saying, I can offer you all the money that Mike Howard's going to hand off to his kids when he dies. I'm like, what do you mean offer that? That's mine anyways. How are you going to offer that to me? He already promised that to me. And so Satan comes, here, Jesus, I can give you this. That's already Jesus' inheritance. But Satan thinks it's his because of this authority that he has. But in truth, Satan is a ruler who only has as much authority as the ultimate ruler God Almighty will give him. And Satan hates this. He's always wanted all of God's power. He wanted it when he was cast out of heaven, which we'll see next week. He wanted it in the garden when he came for Eve's heart, when he came for Adam's wife, when he came for their marriage, when he came for their relationship with God. He was after it when he compelled Cain to rise up in the field and murder his brother. And it was that same crazy desire to steal God's authority that caused him to try to have the Son of God murdered and killed for good at Calvary. And certainly he thought he was successful until Jesus rose. And he ascended and one day he will return and he will rule forever and he will stomp on the serpent's head. And that's what the loud voices are celebrating. There was never a doubt. They're not surprised by the outcome, but it still deserves a loud praise to be lifted to Jesus. And then we have verses 16 through 18, which is the song of the 24 elders. It's the same 24 elders we met in Revelation 4. I don't know if you remember that text where it said around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. We don't have time for a deep dive on why I believe those are people and not angels. Um, we don't have a time for a deep dive on who they are. If you want to go back, you can check out my notes from Revelation 4 and 5. Um, send us an email at connect at seafordbaptist.com. We'll send them to you. 
But for tonight, I'll just say, I argue these are people, and I believe that it is the 12 sons of Israel and the 12 apostles, the Old Testament community's leaders and the New Testament community's leaders, and they represent the entire people of God. In Revelation 21, as we're getting a description of the New Jerusalem, it says, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east uh, three gates, on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the, name, uh, were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That's who I think the elders are. It's the 12 sons of Israel. It's the 12 apostles. It's those who are the leadership of the Jewish people, the natural branches, those who are the leadership of the Gentile people, the grafted in branches, the ones who went out and told them, right? The apostles. But they're one spiritual community now. The, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down by Christ who has died. And what was two bodies is now one under his head and his authority. And so that's who these elders represent, God's people. Again, Old Testament church under the law, New Testament church under grace. And they sing in Revelation 4, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Here they're singing about the sovereign control of God throughout history, and how from the fall of Adam to the triumph of Christ, God's purposes are not going to be thwarted, and he's going to win, and nothing will stop him, and nothing will impede his will. And they give thanks to God, the one who is and was, for the fact that he has taken his great power and he has begun to rule. Do you see that in verse 17? It's his power. And now he's grabbed it and he has begun his eternal rule. The nations tried to stop this. Verse 18 tells us that, right? The nations rage. Clear reference to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 begins, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. In that psalm, the nations are raging against God and his anointed. And his anointed in the immediate is David, but Peter interprets this passage in Acts, and he says, may have been David in the immediate, but ultimately this is about Jesus. Because David, he wasn't promised to have the inheritance of the nations. Jesus was. Keep reading, Psalm 2, verse 3 says, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Much like Satan thinks he can destroy God, he's inspired the nations to think that they also can destroy God, and God sits in heaven and he laughs at the idea of it. He's like, that's funny. That's humorous. And then in verse 5 it says, Then he will speak to him in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Satan and the nations will try to rival God. They will not win. He will win. What's going to be the key to his victory? His son. The one who he has enthroned as king on his holy hill. And if the nations do not want to be crushed under his wrath for their rage, they must turn to the son in faith. They must kiss the son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Remember how I said that the nations are Jesus' um, inheritance? The ends of the earth your possession? You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. 
for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The inheritance of the Son is the nations, the kingdoms of this world. The ends of the earth are his possession, and he will rule over them forever. And the rulers of the earth, as well as everyone under their rule, must turn from sin and serve the Lord with fear and trembling, and they must kiss the Son in faith. Otherwise, they will perish in God's wrath. But if they would take refuge in the Son, they will be blessed. Because remember, if you come against Abraham's family and the one who comes from his line, you will be cursed. But if you believe like Abraham, you will be blessed. King David wrote Psalm 2 when he saw the return of Christ from afar through a prophetic and prophetic lens, almost like a telescope. He was like looking at it. He's like, yeah, I see it out there. I see God's ultimate plan. But what was far off and the blowing of the seventh trumpet has come near and it's so close we can hear it. It's so close we can see heaven opened up and God dwelling with his people. And so the time has arrived. The nations have raged throughout the third cycle. They raged as the earth came apart in the first four trumpets and their economies and their lives were impacted by his judgments in the world. They raged as they hated the torment they felt from the, the demonic forces of hell. They raged against one another in war as God allowed humanity to be given over their sin. They raged against Christ and his church and they followed the beast and they killed the church in the streets but now God's rage towards their sin is falling down on them and it is time for judgment and those who dwell in the earth will receive their punishment along with the prince of darkness that they have followed your wrath came the time for the dead to be judged that's what it says in verse 18 Revelation 20 elaborates on this time. It says, When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 27 through 10 is an elongated and elaborated picture of the judgment spoken of by the elders in Revelation 11 verse 18. The good news is that while the rage of the nations will be judged, the faithfulness of the church will be rewarded. You remember in chapters 2 and 3, again and again, as Jesus spoke to those seven Asia Minor churches, he would tell them that if you endure, you overcome, then you will be a conqueror. You will be a victor. You will receive a crown. And those promises are coming to pass in verse 18. Everybody who fears God, great and small, will be rewarded. And, 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 and in the same way that um, everyone who has chosen to rebel against God will be destroyed with Satan, everyone who has put their faith in Christ will receive as co-heirs with Christ, the inheritance of the nations. For believers, all of heaven is opened up. But for unbelievers, it's lightning and thunder, it's earthquake, it's hail, it's judgment. I'll close by saying this. I remember a friend of mine telling me about his dying grandfather. And he got his kids and his wife and he said, I think this is it, we gotta go see grandpa. You know, the hospice doctor said that it's probably three, four weeks at the most. So they got in the car, they went down there. And uh, his grandfather knew what was up, you know. There was all these last suppers that were happening. And so he kept getting out of bed to meet them at the table, you know, whenever these people would come to see him. And he was so pleased to see that this time it was his grandchild and his great-grandchildren. And so he came and he sat down and they started eating. 
And my friend looked at his grandfather and he said, Grandpa, uh, what are you looking forward to most when you get to heaven? And his, one of his two daughters, she like interrupted. She jumped in. And she was like, Grandma! He can't wait to see Grandma! And he sat his spoon down real hard on the table. He goes, are you crazy? He said, I want to see Jesus. And everybody kind of laughed. And he said, seriously. He said, I'll see Grandma. But she's just going to tell me to look at Jesus. He said, it's all about Jesus, the place that I'm going. And that is true. Heaven is all about Jesus. It's going to be filled with people who long to be in God's presence forever. If you don't love Jesus with a loud voice now, if you do not give thanks to him now, if you do not long to be with him now, how can you say you are heaven bound? Because that's your home. You can't. You've got to examine yourself. You've got to be honest. And you would have to say your life looks more suited for the kingdoms of this world than the kingdoms of the sun. And if that's the state you're in tonight, I want you to agree with God that you're wrong and repent. Kiss the sun in faith lest you die in your wrath because the reward will only come to those who are his servants and his saints. So repent. Are you a servant? Are you a saint? Do you love the Lord Jesus? If your answer is yes, I love him, well then pray for the kingdom to come. Every day, pray for his return. Pray for the destroyer to be destroyed and for the Lord to take his great power and to begin his reign. Let's pray together. Father, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. That's the cry of our heart tonight. Because of cancer, because of death, because of problems in the womb, because of war, because of people and families that should love one another, fighting with one another, Father, because of painful divorce, because of adultery, because of idolatry, because of all the things that just multiply sorrow and doom and woe on this earth, God, we cry Maranatha. We ask that your son would come, that he would return. There's nothing in this world, Lord, worth hanging on to to delay his return. We want him to come back. And yet, Lord, we know it's on your timetable, and we trust you. And so until he comes, until he returns, until we stand on the other side of the Jordan, we stand on this side, we cast a wishful eye, we long for heaven. But thank you for the scripture, Lord, that shows it open, to show what we're longing for, to show what we're asking for when we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And God... Until then, until the day of justice when the saints are rewarded and when those who dwell on the earth who have rebelled against you are punished along with Satan for their rebellion, Father. Until then, I pray that we would keep proclaiming and that we would keep shouting with that same loud voice we see from those in heaven, God, that we would shout your victory and that we would shout your gospel and that we would proclaim Satan's defeat and your victory in this world and that we would call people to turn from sin and to put their faith in you. God, that we would be the witnessing church. That we would tell people here on earth of the heavenly reality to come. And, And Father, I pray they would hear our message and repent. So Father, keep us thankful, keep us prayerful, keep us proclaiming as people who are waiting on your return. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.